All right, good morning, Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're in a series where we're learning how to read the Bible, and that may sound kind of weird to people um, because you may think, well, I can just approach this text like I approach any other thing I read, and the reality is, is that you can, but you'll miss much of the original intent that God had planned for us when we read the, when we read the Scriptures. And so today we're, we've been walking through, we're in week, this is week nine, and I don't know how many weeks this is going to go, but we're in week nine and we've been walking through how to read the Bible. And if you have your bookmarks, we're now over on the second page, the backside of that uh, bookmark. And we've been looking for the first several weeks on what is it that we see when we look at the text, paying attention to things like things that repeat or lists or those kind of things. It's been pretty safe noticing things like that. We just write it down. We notice we don't try to interpret it. We just write it down. But moving to this step, moving today to the context changes the game. This interpretation part requires that we keep our guard up. You can look at scripture and find passages that will justify just about anything you want to justify. Too often people decide what they want the word of God to say and then they search for scriptures to go support it. They want to stand over the text and use it for their purposes. And they depend on the ignorance of others who don't know scripture to believe what they say. Believers who are wowed by charisma and charm and led like sheep to the slaughter with false doctrine. The one thing that all cults and all false religions and denominations have in common is that they deny the deity of Christ. In other words, they deny that Jesus is God. They move the line we talked about last week. They deny the truth that we studied in Colossians. And instead of knowing that he is the image of the invisible God, they make him the image of their false God. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Jews, Scientologists, all deny that Jesus is God. Others search the text filled with pride. They try to find something that will elevate them above others. They major in the minors. This often gives denominations. Some have no musical instruments, King James only, tongues only, snake handlers, hymns only, baptism methods, head coverings. There are innumerable options to choose from if you want to go look for reasons to be divided. They take this verse or that verse and they put it together to create something that's completely unbiblical. In 2 Timothy, Paul warns us to protect against this exact point. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the the word of truth. That's what this entire series is about. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Notice the approved worker handles the word of truth with integrity. There is a way to approach the scriptures with integrity, and we're going to talk about it today. These manipulated misinterpretations, God says, spread like gangrene and ruin those who hear it. They quarrel over words. They develop a checklist that used to separate themselves. I can't tell you the number of times people send me emails, are you King James only? Do you do this? Are you this? Are you this? And they're going through their checkbook. 
checklist to see if we're a place they can be. It's so arrogant. It's so Gnostic. We have special understanding that all the other believers have missed. And it, and it has that idea of that, that we know best, that we're above because we do this particular thing or that particular thing. We can't major in the minors. There are enough biblical truths that are non-negotiable that we can all agree on. We don't need to divide and separate on things where there's disagreement. So we have to be careful. We have to know what God is telling us. How do you move correctly from what the Word says to what the Word means? How do we move correctly from what I've seen to what I now believe it's starting to tell me it means? The point is not my interpretation or your interpretation. That's not our goal. It's not about my meaning or your meaning or someone else's meaning. It's not about making sure that your opinion is correct. There is a truth in the scripture that God has placed there. And our focus has got to be to discover God's truth in that text. Not my truth, not your truth. What does the text tell us? What is God wanting to show us in the text? We have to get to the meaning that God placed in the text. That's the purpose of Bible study. And we all know that when we diligently do our best to interpret correctly... Even though there are the same words, there's going to be some differences. There's going to be some things that aren't completely clear. And we need to be okay with that. There are passages in the Bible that just aren't clear to us. Passages where honest lovers of Jesus, fully devoted to correctly interpreting the text, using the best interpretive methods and safeguards, come to different conclusions about what the text may mean. We have to be comfortable with that. Interpretation always brings in human limitations. These are words from God. We're trying to understand the vastness of God with our little pea brains as humans. We're going to disagree. That doesn't mean the text is wrong. It doesn't mean either of us is wrong. It means we're limited in our understanding. We have to be comfortable with that. It always brings in human limitations. Our hearts can be sold out for Jesus, and we can still disagree with each other about the minors. Now, obviously, when two believers disagree, one of them's right and one's wrong. It's the way it is. There are areas of my theology that I know are wrong. I just don't know which ones. That's the problem. I'm sure that I have taught unintentionally misinterpretations over the years. I know that I have a much deeper understanding of Scripture now than I did when I first started preaching 15 years ago. When I went to medical school, the very first day of medical school, a professor stood up and he, he said, look, half of what we teach you is wrong. We just don't know which half. You're going to discover after you graduate in the next 20 years that half of what we teach you was absolutely wrong, and that's true. Truth changes. What they teach can change in science. Truth is a moving target. But when I got to seminary, I got the opposite speech. The truth does not change because it's from God. What happens is you become more aware, more understanding. Your revelation gets bigger, but the truth didn't change. It was there all along. 
The majors leave no room for interpretation. That line never changes. The seven truths we talked about last week never change. Jesus is God. Jesus created everything. All those truths don't change. We can't debate those. Those are absolutely clear in Scripture. Worship style, which version of the text we use, how gifts are applied, baptism methods, those are minors in which many people major. And doing so spreads like gangrene and divides God's people. The best we can do is walk through Scripture making sure that we're being responsible with the text that has been given to us. That does not mean that if we apply solid methods that we're all going to agree on everything. But here's what it does mean. We're going to agree on the things that are most central to Scripture, the majors. We're not going to disagree on those. And then we're going to have good interpretation, good, solid interpretation that allows us to leave a little bit of difference between the two of us on how we interpret text. But it's not going to divide the body of Christ. I think one of the saddest things I see is the body of Christ dividing over minor things. That's why we're non-denominational as a church. We don't want to divide on that. People ask me all the time, are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? Do you believe that you were saved by choice or do you believe that God selected you ahead of time? And I say, yes. Yes. God chose me and I chose him. I have no idea. And I won't have any idea until we get to heaven and God tells us, it doesn't matter to me. You want to believe that you were pre-chosen? Fine. You want to believe that, that you surrendered to God and he gave? That's great. We can't tell from Scripture a definitive answer. It's so important to understand. Today we're going to talk about context. Literally means that which goes with the text. Okay, context. The dilemma created by context is two things. The Bible communicates eternal content. So what we have in the Bible is eternal. Words handed down from God from all of eternity that will exist well into the future forever. But it communicates through specific context. That's what we're going to look at today. When we read the New Testament, for instance, we need to think about the context of the people who lived in the New Testament, the first century. When we read the Old Testament, we need to go back and think about what it was like to live at the time of Abraham and Jacob. Both of these are dramatically different from the context in which we live today. When we study the book of Revelation... We did so in the context of our world and that of those yet to come, a future context. Every time we teach Scripture at Remnant, we focus as much on the context as we do the content because they have to go together. I've spent as much time, most likely, talking about Jewish culture, the Jewish background, the historical background, the political background, what was going on when the text was written. We need to step in the author's shoes and determine his original intent. We want to go to the original text and explore what it meant. Please don't miss this truth. Remember this if you don't remember anything else from today. The Bible text can never mean what it never meant. The Bible text can never mean what it never meant. In other words, it can't have a meaning today that it didn't have when it was first written. 
It was first written to that audience. The truths of those scriptures had to be true to them before it's true to us. If you read scripture and you come up with something totally new that was not a truth for them, then you've misread the scriptures. We're bringing the truths that are there forward. We're not creating new truths. We'll get into that. We have to step into the author's shoes and recreate his ideas, his experiences, put ourselves in his shoes and think through how this was being communicated. How was it being read? What did it mean to those who first heard these words? Context shapes meaning, but it doesn't change truth. Context shapes, in other words, when you understand the context, you'll understand everything in a greater, broader way, but it never changes the truth that was there all along. Context unlocks the meaning of the text. It allows us to correctly see what God wants us to see. And it helps us to understand what God wanted to tell us through the original author. The truth comes to us wrapped in the original culture in which it was presented, the original language, the nuance of their words, their methods of learning. Often you'll hear me say, that text has been ripped out of context. It's been misinterpreted. They failed to pay attention to the culture or the meaning of what it was being done in the first century. Let me give you an example. Imagine a stop sign. We all know what a stop sign is, right? Red octagon, letters stop on it. We all know what to do, right? I actually looked this up. What are you supposed to do when you come to a stop sign? You're supposed to come to a complete stop before the crosswalk. You're supposed to look to the left. You're supposed to look to the right. You're supposed to look back to the left, and then you're supposed to go if it's clear. Is that right? No. You're supposed to pull up to the crosswalk. You're supposed to look to the left. You're supposed to look to the right. You're supposed to look to the left. Eight seconds at least, by the way. Then you pull up to the end of the crosswalk, because now you've cleared the crosswalk. You look to the left. You look to the right. You look to the left. And if it's clear, you go. And you try not to hit the car that's passing you on your left and honking at you (laughs) as you do that. That's what you're supposed to do when you see a stop sign. How many think we should do that when we see a stop sign? How many think we should stop when we see a stop sign? Let's make it easy. Everybody, right? When we see a stop sign, we should stop. Got it. One day I was walking through an antique store with Tammy. We like to do that because I like to look for antique Bibles and she looks at everything else. One day I came across a sign on a pegboard, a stop sign. Stood, pulled up, looked to the left. Looked to the right, looked to the left, went forward, eight seconds. Here's the deal. Context changes the meaning of something. Suppose you're driving up I-75, and you look over and you see a billboard, and it says, stop here, encouraging you to eat at a restaurant or something. You see the, show the next slide, you see the the billboard, it has a stop sign on it. Do you come to a complete stop on I-75? Look to the left, look to the right, look forward. No, you'll get killed. You're applying that stop sign in the context of where it is. We do this all the time. 
Suppose that you're talking about how wonderful your wife is or your husband, and you're talking about singing their praises to other people, and they turn and they say, stop, stop, stop. You get the point. Continue. Here's what you need to remember. Context rules. Misinterpreting the context of that stop sign. And you might get a ticket. You might get in an accident. You might get run over. On I-75, context rules. You have to know not only the truth of what it means, but how it applies in that context. That make sense? We ignore the context of this book all the time. We twist the book to mean all kinds of different things. We have to know the context. First context we have to know is our context. The second context we need to know is their context. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next little while. We bring a context to the scriptures. We bring a lens through which we look at scripture. We can't help it. It's subconscious. We're 21st century Westerners. We have lenses that shape and usually cloud our perspective when we look at scripture. Our context often clouds what we're trying to see. Their context highlights what needs to be seen. If we bring our context, our perspective to the text, without being aware of it, it usually makes what we're trying to see hard to see. On the other hand, when we begin to understand their context, it's like God has just put a highlight. Oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what that phrase meant to them. Now I understand what it means to me. Our context. Now, this might be a bit confusing because I keep telling you, you got to understand the first century before you can bring it forward to us. But there's something that we have to be aware of when we read Scripture. There are things that we've learned to do as 21st century Westerners. We have a mindset. We have a perspective. We have a way of looking at things. And if we're not aware of that, we will subconsciously allow that to cloud what we're trying to do. But we can't remove the fact that you and I come to the text with preconceived notions, ideas, expectations. They can be conscious or subconscious, but they're a lens that we look through. One lens, for example, is pride. When you and I bring pride to the Scripture, it clouds what we're trying to see. Almost all of us look back in time with prideful arrogance. We just do it. We're smarter than they were. They're, we're more enlightened than they were. They were foolish and ignorant. We're wise and intelligent. That's just the way we see things. Look back in history, you'll always hear people going, well, those idiots, they thought blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, 100 years from now, people go, those idiots, they thought blah, blah, blah. We bring an arrogance to the text. We get lost in our pride when we get to a particular passage and we say, oh, I already know what this means. Pride is the idea in the Bible study that says we know what it means before we allow the text to show us what it means. Oh, I've read this story. I know this story. You almost feel like you're wasting time reading it because you know it all. Yet God says pride comes before the fall and humility is the beginning of wisdom. When you read scripture, God's watching your heart. Do you believe I can reveal something to you that you've never seen before? 
Are you expecting me to encounter you in this text and show you something new? Are you here humbly ready to be taught or do you already think you know everything and you're blind to what's in front of you? Psalm 25.9, he leads the humble in what is right and he teaches the humble his way. Many of us have a hard time hearing from God because we've already heard from ourselves. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. If you want to see the truth, if you want the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to you that's in Scripture, you need to come to the Holy Spirit as a learner, not an expert. Even if you've read the passage a hundred times, one of the hardest things is to look at a familiar passage, we'll get to that in a minute, with open eyes. Another lens we bring to the text is our agenda. Sometimes we come to the text with a theological agenda. So we come to the text and we want to find out whatever supports our theological slant. Maybe you're a Calvinist. And you say, well, I'm going to come and say, well, I'm going to find predestination in this. Or maybe you don't believe in predestination and you come and you twist scriptures that talk about predestination. Some come to the text trying to undo the sin of homosexuality. They see in the sick what they want to see. Or to justify abortion or to validate materialism. We put a lens of our theological ideas and we look at text trying to support a viewpoint instead of trying to let the text tell us what the viewpoint is. Does that make sense? We can come to a text saying, okay, I'm going to find a text that proves I can do this. That's not how you approach Scripture. You approach Scripture with, there's a meaning in the text that needs to come this way. And I need to see it, understand it, and embrace it. I have nothing to add to this text. This text was true long before I existed, long before I had an idea about it. I have nothing to bring to the text. I'm here to let the text bring everything to me. How do we avoid this? I say it all the time. We have to avoid standing over the text, making it say what we want it to say. And we have to humbly submit to what the text and what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. And when I talk about the text, I'm not trying to personalize it as if it's something. It's the words of God. Okay? The, God has spoken a truth. He wants to get it to us. The Holy Spirit wants to reveal it and show it to us. We have to sit under that, not stand over it. We let Scripture define our agenda. Let me explain this. This is so critical. If you come to the text with your agenda, trying to make it say what you want it to say, you're almost always going to be wrong. What we have to understand is the text itself brings the agenda to us. In other words, I read the text, and I know that I deal with materialism, let's say, and I know that I have a problem there. Instead of going to the text and saying, okay, I got to find a text that says rich people can do what they want. Okay, instead of that, I got to go to the text and go, wow, there's a truth here. Something about it being harder than the camel going through the, this, I've got to deal with the truth that's in the text as it comes to me. I can't bring my agenda. I have to let God set the agenda and then I got to surrender to it. 
Another lens that we bring to the text I talked about a minute ago is familiarity. I believe the hardest things to study are the ones you think you know. You really have to guard against familiarity because it ties into your pride. I've read the story of Noah a hundred times. I know everything about the story of Noah. I got this down. I've studied it with felt board when I was three years old. I've read this story a hundred thousand times. Did you notice that God shut the door to the ark? That he didn't make Noah do that? That Noah hearing people screaming and yelling and drowning in his heart would have wanted to save them and God in his compassion for Noah shut the door. You ever notice that? There are times when we get to scriptures and we think we know them. And all of a sudden you go, I can't believe I never saw that before. Wow, there's a truth. I've never seen that before. We saw it before. We were just clouded by our lens of familiarity. One of the hardest sermons to preach, one of the hardest series to do every year is Easter and Christmas. Because everybody says they know the story. And you've got to show them a new perspective. You've got to show them something new. I've done over 10 Easter and Christmas series. I've never repeated it. It's like, okay, I've got to show them something new. How do you do that? You go to God and you say, God, what do you want Remnant to see in 2020 about Easter? What's important to you? What part of this story do you want us to look at? What can you show us that we haven't seen before? Because I guarantee you, the minute you think you know what's in the text, that text disappears for you when it comes to meaning. It's only when you come to the text and deal with your familiarity. Then you begin to see things that you've never seen before. It's always been in the text, you're now seeing it. Because the Holy Spirit is highlighting it. You were clouded with your lens, now you're being highlighted by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it becomes like reading it for the first time again. I never saw that. That changes everything. Another lens we bring to the text is our culture. We have to guard against our culture. This is huge. Too often we discount scriptural truths because we've already boxed things into our belief system. Look at these words from Jesus. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Our first thought is, let's be honest, Someone strikes you on the right cheek and you keep turning the other cheek, they're going to destroy you. You're going to have a destiny with a CAT scanner. So obviously that's not what he wants us to do. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, you let them have your cloak as well. You may as well give them the keys to your house and your car. He doesn't want us to do that. So that can't be what it means. I have just shaded the text with my cultural lens. We've just imposed a very self-centered Western American materialistic culture on a text that never was interpreted to be interpreted in that culture alone. We say I need to protect my stuff and my friends and myself before anything else. And yet Jesus's words mean exactly what Jesus said. Let me repeat that. Jesus's words mean exactly what the text said. When somebody slaps you, give them the other cheek. When somebody wants to take something, give them something else. Give them the whole thing. Those haven't changed. That's the truth that's in that text. That's what Jesus wanted to teach. And it was just as radical for the first audience that heard it as it is for ours. That's why he's teaching it. Sometimes we don't even realize it. 
Our culture brings a lot of things to meaning, words and language. And we have to realize that some words were said in the first century meant different things than what they mean in the 21st century. So we need to know what the word meant in their culture, not ours. That's what translation does. We bring the lens of our customs to the table. Think about your family. Picture your family right now. Think about what the word family means to you. I guarantee you that your idea of family is very different than what a first century Jewish person thought about family. You both love your family. You both care about your family. But family context in the Middle East is thick. You grew up and you stayed in your father's house. You brought your wife into your father's house. You didn't move away. There's no reason to Skype. You were going to stay with your family. The honor and integrity of your family is almost above everything else. They lived under one roof their entire lives. They didn't scatter around the world. The idea that their family would live somewhere other than where they are is inconceivable to them. If you notice, when Abraham left to go to a new place, who did he take with him? His family. The idea of relocating without your entire family was just not heard of. They defended family honor at all costs. That means somebody studying the Bible from the Middle East and studying the Bible from America is going to be bringing two different contexts to any understanding of the teaching of family. When Jesus said that belief in him would divide families and divide them against each other, that meant much more to them than it means to us, even though it means a lot to us. They couldn't conceive that Jesus could turn a son against his father or a father against his son or a mother against her daughter. That was just blowing their minds. They couldn't believe it. How is that possible? We look at it and we go, yeah, families are fractionated all over the place. They couldn't even fathom it. It's earth-shattering to them. The lens of our cultural context, if we look at a culture, a scripture about family, and we look at it from our perspective, we're going to miss the depth of the meaning. Another lens. We have to be aware of our cultural lens, our values, our economics, our politics, our ethnicity, our gender, our views on gender in our culture compared to their culture. The role of women, the role of men. We bring all of that to the table, consciously or subconsciously. We have to be aware of the lens that we're bringing to the table. When it comes to religion, arts, images, all these things we bring to the table as we begin to interpret Scripture. We don't set out to intentionally misunderstand, but there's a lot of things in our subconscious world that we believe based on our culture that we bring to the text. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that. What I'm saying is we need to be aware of it. Another lens that we bring is our faith. We read this book differently than other people, even in our culture, read this book because we have faith. We have faith in God when it comes to this text. We have faith in Christ. We believe that while we read the Holy Spirit, God himself is teaching us and speaking to us. We have a belief in the power of God to use these words to change the world and to change ourselves. 
We believe the Bible is inspired, the very words of God himself, written to us through humans. It's the word of God delivered by God through his spirit and interpreted by his spirit to us. We believe the Bible is the sole source of truth. We believe that it is reliable in every circumstance. We believe the Bible is unified across all themes, across everything, that it never contradicts. No errors, no contradictions. We believe the Bible is diverse. We believe the Bible is supernatural. We can't undo that when we read the text. You ever gone to somebody and said, hey, you know what the Bible's? Bible says this. I don't care. But you don't understand. The Bible said, let me walk you down the Roman road. Uh, no, no. I don't, why would I? It's a book. Let me tell you what the Odyssey says. Why are you freaking out about this book? Well, because I know God wrote it. They don't know that. And they're in our culture. We have to understand the things we bring to the text. Because we have faith. Because we know God, because we've seen him work in our lives. When we don't understand something, when we get to that part of the text that is mysterious, when we don't completely understand, there's a tension and a mystery to the text that we all accept. That's part of our journey of faith. But somebody that doesn't have that same lens is going to discount the whole thing because they don't understand it on their first pass. We bring our faith. And that's a good thing to bring to the text. The purpose of this book is to bring us into the image of Christ. Some things that we look at the text tend to cloud the text. Our views on women, our views on society, our views on what should be. Other things tend to clear it for us. Our faith. Our trust in the Holy Spirit as a teacher to reveal what he wants to reveal when he wants to reveal it. And here's the deal. Under no circumstance can we absolutely be objective. You can't turn off yourself. All you can do is realize that some of your lenses shape the way you read. And if you tend to have an issue with that, just be aware of it. Make sure you're humbly looking at the text. Make sure you're trying to let the text tell you what's true, not you tell the text what's true. Every time we pick up the text, we bring our pride, our agenda, our familiarity, our culture, and our faith to that text. We just have to be aware of it. So bringing context to the text. Now look at the context they bring to the text. Okay, now we've looked at what we bring that we have to be aware of. We're now going to move to what did the first century audience or what did the original audience bring to the text? Remember that scripture is God's word to other people before it became God's word to us. This book wasn't written just to us. It was first and foremost written to the original audience. The truths that were in the original text are timeless truths that never change. Nothing can be true in the text today that wasn't true in the text for them because then it wouldn't be a timeless truth. It would be a new truth. We may have understanding that's different. So when we read a text and we read in Revelation of a big glow and it, and it looks like skin's melting off people and millions of people are dying, we see nuclear explosion. We have a different understanding of what that might be. But the original truth of that text, that there will be a day when skin falls off people, and there's, I mean, that hasn't changed. That's the truth. We just have a little more understanding because of where we are in time. 
God deeply cared about them to give them his word. Remember that God picked a time in history to decide to bring his son into the world. He picked a specific time in history to show us a picture of God's love for us in a particular region of the world. God cares deeply about us too. Everything he did was perfect. So first thing we have to understand when we look at it from their perspective is we have to understand literary context. What type of literature are we reading? Genre is important when you read the Bible. When you read through the Bible, you'll find all kinds of genres. You'll find stories, speeches, poetry, prophetic oracles, all kinds of different literature. What we've got in this one book is a huge assortment, a collection of various types of writings. We need to know what we're reading. What type of writing are we reading? And I picture it like this. If you tried to play a basketball game, thinking that you're operating under the rules of football, you will foul out very quickly. When everybody's dribbling around a basketball and you wipe them out, you're going to be out of the game quickly. We have practical examples of this. During the last week, you might have read a newspaper. Can't imagine this, but maybe you looked up a number in a phone book. Ordered from a menu, read a poem, looked at a map, read a letter, waited through instructions on how to put something together, meditated on a devotional book. You have to approach each of those writings differently. You're not going to read a phone book the same way you read a love letter. And you're not going to order off, read a menu the same way you read a newspaper. You have to understand what you're reading. The danger in topical preaching. You may notice I almost never do topical teaching. Let me just explain that. There's two kinds of topical teaching. Or teaching. One is called topical, one's called exegetical. Topical is I have something I want you to do or to understand about God. Or maybe I just want you to do something. So I'll decide what I want to teach you, okay? And I'll find scripture to support it. And I'll pull that scripture from all over the place, put it all together and tie it in a bow and hand it to you and say, this is what God wants. There are so many opportunities to get lost in that process. It can be done correctly. I'm not saying it can't. It's just much harder than anything I ever want to try to attempt to do. Because I think the chances of misleading people and manipulating people is sky high. Exegetical teaching, which is what I almost always do, is we're going to walk through the text and we're going to deal with what the text says. The text is going to drive our agenda. The text is going to drive what we say. We're not going to skip verses so I don't have to preach on them. We're going through the text as God wrote it, and then we're going to look at the text and say, what does that mean? It keeps us from moving our agenda onto you. In the Old Testament, there's narrative, stories, law, poetry, prophets, wisdom. In the New Testament, you have letters, you have gospels, parables. You have a book of Acts that talks about the early church. You've got Revelation, which is a different genre all by itself. We have to understand what we're reading. 
When you read Revelation and he's trying to describe a vision of what he's seeing, you can't really take that exactly literally. He's trying to describe something he doesn't have words for. You have to understand what you're reading. Second is grammar. We spend a lot of time talking about grammar and how it means things. The Bible's not just a group of parts that exist separate from each other. They come together as a whole. It's almost like you've got to, just look at it this way, concentric circles, right? And the original circle is the text itself. And then the next circle may be, okay, how does that text fit into the paragraph? And how does that fit in to the story? How does that fit into the chapter? How does that fit into this book I'm reading? How does that fit into what I know from other books? How does that fit into the overall text? We have to understand what we're reading. Let me give you an example. Jesus said this, for wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay. How many times have you heard somebody get on the stage and say, well, when two of us are gathered, Jesus is here. Or somebody in a prayer group, God, I know that when we're together, you're here. And your first thought is, well, what happened during my devotional this morning when I was by myself? Were you not here? It's in Scripture, whenever two or more are gathered, I'm here. The only problem is we're thinking, man, i got to find somebody else to connect God with God. And the reason is they've pulled that verse out of context. Do you know the context of that verse? The context of that verse is when y'all start fighting, when Christians disagree, when you all get together and start arguing about stuff, don't forget that I'm in the room. That's the context. You can't pull it out of that context. It's an incredible verse, but if you pull it out of context, you miss the whole point. Do you remember Paul or uh, John in Revelation talking to the church at Laodicea? He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. How many times have you heard somebody during an altar call say, he's standing at the door knocking on your heart? Then scripture, he's just knocking on your heart. Jesus is knocking on your heart. He wants you to come down to the altar. He wants you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ tonight. Knocking, do you hear him knocking? Knocking on the door. Better answer it. He might not knock again. How many times have you heard that? Hundreds. The only problem is it rips it out of context. Do you know what that verse really means? Jesus is standing at the door of his church, knocking on the door, begging that we'll actually let him into his church and do what he wants us to do. And he's telling the church at Laodicea, I'm knocking at the door of your church. You don't even know who I am. You're not letting me into my own church. The warning is as a church, we can become decapitated that he can be the leader of our church and we don't even recognize him when he shows up at the door. In fact, we've locked the door to keep him out. He couldn't just open the door. He has to knock on it and beg to come in. And what does he beg to come in for? I'm coming in to have supper with you. Do you remember the Lord's Supper? Do you remember communion? Do you remember how I was supposed to be with you in your services? You're not even letting me serve and eat with you. That's the meaning of the text. It has nothing to do with manipulating people in a moment of goosebumps to think they've surrendered their life to Christ. The next context we have to deal with is the historical context. We have to take into account the history, the culture. This is why I spend so much time trying to teach you about Jewish culture, 
about what was meant to a Jewish culture. We have to get to know which wire. Okay, I'll try not to move. We have to get to know the author. Paul was extremely frustrated with the Galatians when he wrote Galatians. You can read it in the first few words. He is fuming. You have to recognize the condition of the author. When we studied Jonah, do you remember how the text opened up when I showed you his prejudice towards the Ninevites? All of a sudden, it starts making sense. He, he, he hated the Ninevites. We've got to know the author. We've got to know the audience. Every biblical book is written to a specific audience. Mark is writing to a bunch of believers who are facing persecution. That affects the way you interpret the book of Mark. When John writes his book, he's writing to Jewish people. And he says that he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and find life in his name. You have to know the author. You have to know the audience. Colossians, I just told you earlier, Paul never met them. That's important to know. You also need to know the geographic conditions. We recently studied the Samaritan woman at the well, if you remember. And we studied the passage that said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. You remember that? And I showed you a map, and I said, hey, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone the way everybody went. If we know the geography, if we know the map, we look at it and we go, huh, why did he have to go through there? It must not have been that he had to go geographically. He had to go because he had someone to meet. He needed to meet the woman at the well. It's a picture of Jesus going outside the norm because he's pursuing people that other people have overlooked and don't care about. If you don't know the geography, you miss out on the very reason Jesus went. You have to know the social conditions. When Jesus got to that well, the Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? You have to know the social conditions. That is way out of bounds. For a man to talk to a woman in broad daylight that he does not know, who's from another man's family that he doesn't have permission to talk to, to address a woman in public and then to ask her to do something for you in that social culture was an absolute no-no. Definitely no. Not a man talking to a woman, not a Jew talking to a Samaritan. The first audience would have seen that immediately. We have to be aware of that if we want to understand what's really happening with this woman at the well. And we don't know that unless we know the historical context in the text. We also have to know the social conditions. Will you give me a drink? Way out of line. Religious conditions. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. If we don't know what that means, if we don't know the religious undertones of everything that means, we're not going to understand the compassion of Jesus on people who've rejected him. And yet you ask me for a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's not that they don't associate, they hate them. They think they're half-breeds. They think they're pagans. That religious divide goes all the way through the Old Testament. And the divide is the Samaritans accept only the first five books of the Bible and reject all the words of the prophets, all the Psalms, all the Proverbs. They, they, they 
worship on their mountain, serving their God instead of the temple in Jerusalem. That's what we need to understand if we understand. Jesus went out of his way geographically. He went out of his way to talk to a woman that he shouldn't be talking to. He's talking to a Samaritan, a dirty pagan who worships a false god. That's important because he's headed to Jerusalem and he'll be unclean. He shouldn't have associated with her. When the disciples come back and see him talking to her, they can't even say anything. They don't know what to say. They notice that he's talking to her and basically they come up to him because they're so flustered with what he's done. They say, hey, what do you want for lunch? What do you want? You want something for lunch? They don't even want to talk about it. The religious conditions of John chapter 4. We need to know the economic conditions that they have in the text. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well and drank for himself and his sons and flocks and herds? We have to understand that economically this woman would have had to come to this well many times during the day to get water. And she's coming in the heat of the day and she's coming by herself. That just didn't happen. First, it wasn't safe for women to travel by themselves. Second, they saw it as a social way to get away from men. They just enjoyed that. I don't understand it. But they wanted to get away by themselves all the way up to get water and all the way to get back. And yet she comes in the heat of the day by herself. That says something. And then we got to know the political climate. We have to understand the politics of what's happening. The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. They were looking for a political Messiah. That was the picture that helps us understand the expectation she had for the Messiah and how Jesus is about to be revealed to her. All those facets play into this one little story. Geography, history, politics, economics. All play into that story. You have to understand those to understand the story. Otherwise, it's just Jesus meeting a woman getting a drink of water. Third, we have to look at theological context. Everything you study fits into the overall scripture. Everything's interrelated. Every passage we study has been developed in the Old Testament, carried through to the New Testament. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, the Bible's like a symphony orchestra with the Holy Ghost as its Toscanini, each instrument being brought willingly, spontaneously, creatively to play its notes, just as the conductor desired, yet none of them could hear the music as a whole. I love that. It's like the scriptures were all written by people who are doing what the Holy Spirit says, and they have no idea the orchestra they're playing a part in. They're just playing their part. And they don't hear the overall thing, but yet their part is perfectly fit into the overall structure. It's like an incredible symphony that only becomes forward when everything is seen in relation to everything else. It's incredible. You don't read the text isolated from all other texts. You have to read them into how that text fits into the overall message of the Bible. When you know the heart of God in other texts, it helps you interpret the heart of God in new texts. So those are the four C's that we're working on. This is the second one. We did content, now we're looking at context. We have to understand what it meant to the original audience and what we bring to the process. 
This step is the most critical one because if we get the interpretation wrong, how we bring it forward is going to be wrong and how we apply it to our lives is going to be wrong. I believe this step is the most critical one. And the most important thing to getting this step right is to know your heart when you come to the text. I started earlier by saying that we can't stand over the text. We have to sit under it. That every time we open this book, it's a worship experience. A time with the Holy Spirit exploring the mysteries of God, uncovering truths, wowing us with the depths of his words. These are ancient historical documents written by God, handed down through generations. Guarded in secrecy at times, hidden in caves, precisely copied by hand and then checked and double-checked, and if anything was wrong, they started over. Handed down through the blood of martyrs. People literally reading the Bible while they're being slaughtered for it because they won't let it out of their hands. Handed from person to person. Taught from parent to child, grandparent to grandchild. Words of hope for the desperate, words of love for those that are unloved. Peace to those riddled with fear, forgiveness for those shackled with guilt and shame. Eternal life for those who believe they're sentenced to death. These words from the heart of God to those he most desperately loves. The first words from God to his people were etched in stone in Mount Sinai. God himself literally wrote with his finger. Then they were broken by man, given back by God. Imagine you had the original stones from Mount Sinai where God inscribed the Ten Commandments, literally in your hands. Imagine looking inside the Ark of the Covenant and seeing those stones, the very words of God, written by God to you. Imagine the reverence you would have for those Ten Commandments. Now imagine that added to those ancient documents was a story that contained the story of God and the Jewish people through history, written by God. The very words of God spoken through his prophets to the Jewish people and now recorded so they can speak to us too. Given to you and me are the secrets of God the advice of the wisest man who ever lived. Imagine dusting off the pages of history that reveal the story of the God-man Jesus told by those who were actually there. Incredibly, this gift continues. God telling us about the early church, about the challenges and the failures and the successes. And then almost as an afterthought, he says, okay, let me remind you also of what's going to happen in the future. Every time you open this book, you have to open it with incredible humility. I brought some of my collection of antique Bibles for you to look at out in the lobby. Pick them up, look at them. You can't hurt them. They've been beat up for years. I collect antique Bibles because they remind me that the words of God never changed. That when I hold a Bible that was held by a Civil War soldier who needed hope, or sat in a dining parlor and read by families in the early 1800s. I look at the very same pages, read the very same words. The pages where others who are now in heaven have looked during desperate times of hope and great times of praise. It prepares my heart to continue the legacy.
Well, when I look at Bibles that are 200 years old, and I know that's nothing compared to all of history, but they're 200 years old. And somebody 200 years ago during the Civil War or before opened those words and looked for hope. And somebody in the Great Depression looked for hope. And somebody who just lost their family, and I know that because they wrote it in the Bible, is looking for answers of hope. And I'm looking at the very same words. They've never changed. Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who's not. Sometimes in these Bibles I've found when I buy them that people have placed what's most dear to their hearts between the pages. They're out there. You can look at them. Some of my Bibles have genealogies written in the Bible or folded on paper. There's one out there that has a genealogy going back to the 1500s on a ship coming to the U.S. in the early 1600s and traces it 200 years down, all before we had computers. Some, for some reason, have leaves pressed in between the pages. I don't know why, but I have several Bibles where there's multiple leaves throughout the pages. Pressed flowers, locks of hair. This freaked me out. I got my grandmother's Bible, and there was a lock of my mother's hair in there. It was disgusting, just saying but for some people, that's really dear to them. Some have death certificates in them. Some have notes about families. Every one of these things was dear to that person's heart, so they put it in the most dear place they can think of, the Word of God. What better place to keep the things closest to your heart than to the heart that sold out to Jesus? You remember I told you when I first read a passage to preach it that I read it seven times. What I didn't tell you is that I always read it from one of these Bibles. I know it sounds weird, but I open the most ancient text I can find, and you're really going to think I'm weird. I smell the book. I smell the book. I know, it's weird. I almost never dust off the dust because I don't want it to go away. I turn off all the lights in the room with the exception of a single light on my desk that I put on dim. If you've watched my YouTube channel, Frank Bible Truth, you've seen this Bible over behind my left shoulder on the desk. That one dates to 1872. Sometimes I'll read it by candlelight. I'll do this so I never forget the weight and responsibility that comes with trying to understand the text and then teach God's word. Your heart and your awareness of your unworthiness to know the secrets of God, your reverence for God, for his truth, for his relationship, to meet him in the middle of those pages is the correct lens that you have to have to see and understand the truths that God's already put in that text. We've learned how to look for content, lists, and repeats, and many others. Now we've learned how to consider context, our context, the lens we bring, and their context, the lens they bring to highlight. We're going to continue our exploration of the text next week. But this week, I want you to just spend some time thinking about this book that you casually hold in your hand. I say this all the time. These are ancient words from God. 
as much written by God as the original Ten Commandments on tablet. You possess them in your hands. How you approach the text is probably one of the most important things that you can learn about Bible study. When you understand how many people died to get it to you, when you understand how it was written, how it was passed down, how it was hidden in caves, how the same words that I read today are the same ones that Paul actually wrote, that Paul and James and Peter and John sat down and said, I want to tell you the most important things I know about the Jesus that I experienced because I got to live when he was here. You didn't. Let me make sure you understand what all that meant. You can't read the scriptures without understanding the power of what God has given you. And when you see the way the scriptures have been written, you fall on your face in worship. And you know you're unworthy to receive the truth, but the truth comes anyway. And all you can do is be grateful and make sure that if that truth has been revealed to you, and it's a truth of all times, that you make sure you honor God by actually living that truth out in your life no matter what. Why is it so easy to follow the truth of the Word of God? Because I know where it came from. And I have a reverence for God and His Word that is above me by far. We have to understand context. We have to understand our heart when we approach Scripture. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You love us enough to not only come save us, but to actually write a book for us a book that shapes everything, everything about us, if we'll allow it, a book that reveals truth to us, if we'll allow it, a book that reveals your love for us, if we'll allow it. God, would you help us break through the lenses that keep us from seeing clearly and make sure that we understand the cultural things that highlight the text and bring meaning to them? God, would you make sure above all else that we stand under this text? We never try to rise above it because we have no place there. God, forgive us when we think we already know everything that's in this book. Forgive us when we become so familiar with ourselves that we miss you. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you teach us. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 